Welcome to the Center for Thomistic Studies Colloquium Series Podcast. Each episode of our Colloquium Series Podcast features a member of the Center or visiting scholar presenting a philosophical paper on a subject of their research. In this episode, we will hear Dr. Brian Kempel of the Wentworth Institute of Technology and the Center for the Study of Digital Life presenting a paper entitled Interpretation and Traditions, an Intersection for Semiotics, Phenomenology, and Thomism. And without further ado, our podcast. Thank you. Um, so my topic today is going to, in some sense, be working on themes found, or at least suggested, in both books. And in particular, um, the main thing that I'm looking at today is why people are so quick to develop and obstinate in maintaining bad intellectual positions. <laughs> <laughs> And this isn't in terms, at least entirely in terms of the historical causes which have contributed to the state of bad thinking which prevails today, but in terms of the cognitive capacities themselves. That is, what's happening in the person as a cognitive agent when falsehoods are adopted and subsequently protected. Because falsity occurs only with composition and division, I think it's fair to characterize this difficulty as one of interpretation, as the title suggests. Now, to lay out what exactly that difficulty is and how it occurs, I want to draw on the traditions of Thomism, phenomenology, and semiotics, and I'll do so in three steps. First, I want to look at the process of interpretation itself. Second, I want to examine two different modes in which interpretation occurs. And third, I want to consider interpretation in light of the philosophical movement of resolution, which I think is sort of a unique glory, if you will, of the Thomistic tradition. Okay, but very quickly before going on to the main topic, uh, I think four brief comments for the sake of context will be helpful. First of all, when I say semiotics, I mean two things at once. On the one hand, I mean the tradition following Charles Peirce in studying the action of signs. This tradition is historically rather immature, and it faces many struggles, um, particularly as it's grown up against a parallel nominalist tradition of semiology, primarily in Europe. Uh, the true semiotic tradition as it exists today shows a lot of promise, but it remains fragile, and it's actually threatened by a new pattern of scientism, which is inimical to the thought of Peirce himself. Now, on the other hand, by semiotics, I mean the specific use for which Peirce himself reserved the term, namely as a synonym with logic understood broadly, and as the normative science of truth. In other words, semiotics for Peirce was that study by means of which, through understanding the nature and function of signs, we can discern the norms for truth, how it appears, what it governs, and so on. Second, when I say phenomenology, I'm using this in a very restricted sense, uh, perhaps even idiosyncratically restricted. Uh, that is, I mean, phenomenology is a method and not as a science, uh, which is to say phenomenology as Heidegger conceived it, or rather as I interpret Heidegger to have conceived it. Uh, this method consists in a recursive three-step process, which Heidegger termed destruction, construction, and reduction, which I'll discuss a little bit today. I can't get too uh, into the details, but I'll go over it a little bit towards the end. 
You know, third, when I say Thomism, I think what I mean shouldn't really be any surprise to anyone here. Uh, but to be clear, what I believe most essential to the tradition of Thomism is adherence to the metaphysical principles of Thomas Aquinas, and which seeks resolution of all inquiry not only to a first principle of intelligible coherence, but also to the supreme principle of all existence, to God. Now, while there are undoubtedly inconsistencies from individual to individual, I believe a general agreement upon these principles is the most basic condition for someone being considered a Thomist. Fourth, and finally, I want to say a word or three about meaning. When we speak of meaning, typically we intend one or more of three possible senses. First, we intend the intelligibility of some being independent of what anyone might actually happen to think about it. Second, we intend the referential, that is, meaning as it comes to exist in the relationship between any two things, at least one of which is a cognitive agent, such that what a dove means to a human is not the same as what it means to a dog, and a crucifix means something different to a Catholic than it does to a Buddhist. And third, we intend the importance or purpose of an object, as when we ask someone why an item is meaningful for someone. Respectively, I call these the intelligible sense, the referential sense, and the teleological sense of meaning. And notably, they are all somehow or another uh, connected. I think it is a common belief today, unconsciously imbibed by the many, but celebrated by the learned sophists of every stripe, that meaning in the sense of referentiality either excludes or subsumes meaning in the sense of intelligibility. That meaning is only ever, quote, a local and situated phenomenon, or that it is, quote, a product of the operations that use meaning and not, for instance, a quality of the world attributable to a creation of foundation and origin. And I think this belief, uh, unconscious in the many but celebrated by the sophists, has wrought no small amount of damage on the ability of people to think. Okay. So to begin thinking about the process of interpretation, generally considered to interpret is understood as the attempt at explaining the meaning of something. <clears throat> it's, uh, we can understand that either very broad or very narrow, such that there's almost an analogical tendency in the common application of the term, um, <clears throat> such that it can be said more properly of some attempts to explain meaning than others. The determining factor is in what sense and to what depth the attempt engages meaning in the senses outlined above. The more thoroughly these senses of meaning are explicated by the attempt, the more properly it can be called an interpretation. The position I'm advancing in this paper holds meaning to reside primarily, but far from exclusively, in the sense of intelligibility, such that intelligibility grounds the referential and, together with the referential, attains completion in the teleological. Therefore, while there are interpretation-like actions carried out at the levels of sensation and perception, only an intellectual attempt can be called an interpretation in the fullest sense, for only at the level of intellect does intelligible meaning, and therefore the whole of meaning, come into view. Okay. Now, the sign of such an intellectual attempt at explaining meaning, Thomas says, is, quote, enunciative oration in which the true or false is found. Enunciation is a technical, albeit loose, and I think rather inconsistently used term for Thomas, which indicates the result of composition and division. That is, he goes back and forth in using enunciation and proposition in similar, related, and sometimes contrasting ways. What enunciation does not do 
at least in the interpretation of John of St. Thomas, or John Ponceau, is assent or dissent to the reality of what it composes or divides. This, rather, John of St. Thomas says, is a function of judgment, properly speaking. It doesn't seem that Thomas ever explicitly ascribes this function of assent to judgment exclusively, but there are some texts which strongly suggest that is the case, and those are listed uh, on the handout there, uh, I think under assent and dissent. <clears throat> okay. In contrast, enunciation is, to quote Ponceau, a complete oration expressing a complex object concerning which a judgment can be made, and from which it follows that the enunciation signifies the true or the false. Therefore, I think enunciation is justly termed a stage within a dialectical process seeking the intelligible unity of subject and predicate, which is to say that although enunciation can become part of scientific knowledge, such that the dialectical formation of interpretive <coughs> opinions should be for the sake of knowledge, the enunciation itself belongs within a process which immediately seeks resolution to a unity of intelligible meaning, but not necessarily a unity of meaning and substantially existent reality, that is, to the things themselves. Um, and as an aside, there's, there's certainly some complications about how we should understand the term dialectic, but I'm going to skip over those. Okay, now how is this resolving to a unity of intelligible meaning accomplished? In verbal expression, we explicitly signify any unity by the copula, some form of the word is. The term est, and by extension essay, Thomas says, signifies no thing. It con-signifies the composition of things, but of itself, said simply, it, quote, <coughs> signifies that which first falls into the intellect in the mode of absolute actuality. For est, said simply, signifies to be in act. Now, the being in act here, uh, which first falls into the intellect, ends, is not to be taken as the actus ascendi of a substantial being conceived in itself. Rather, the being in act here recognized is the being in act of the object which does not reduce to its relations to the individual cognitively realizing it. This is, to quote the Summa Theologia, the ends that signifies the truth of a proposition, which consists in a composition, is made known by the verb est, and is the ends which answers the question whether it is. In other words, through composition and division, we attempt resolution to ends as signifying the truth of a proposition. <coughs> a state of being wherein something is what it is, since to say whether something is presumes that it's already understand in at least a provisional sense of what. Or really what everyone means when they say in just common speech, the truth or the way things are. <clears throat> Consequently, it is a true enunciation signified by the expression, a unicorn is a one-horned animal, or Othello's Iago is a wretched soul, such that the meaning is not only non-contradictory, but even apt such that by them the mind is rightly intended towards a complex, if fictional, object, and yet the being of these objects, precisely as they are objects, resolve to no actus ascendi of any substance. Hence why I'm terming interpretation or enunciation here a dialectical process, for it is an attempt to discover the intelligible which resolves to the principle of all intelligibility, but not necessarily to a principle of existence. 
But this interpretive composing and dividing, both when judgment is and is not suspended, does not occur in a realm of ideas abstract from the perceptual. In other words, the return to the phantasm through which any act of understanding is accomplished stands ontologically but not chronologically posterior to the acts whereby we compose and divide. Consequently, while the act of interpretation itself consists in the enunciate of composing and dividing, the act of interpretation exists within a larger operative whole through which the meaning is worked out. And if we are to understand the act of interpretation, we need also to understand the process of its elaboration. To do so, I want to draw on some distinctions made by Peirce. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, Peirce does not give a specific, explicit definition of interpretation, but extrapolating from his very extensive discussions of it, I believe it accurate to say that Peirce considers interpretation as the internally generated determination of a living being in its relationship towards some object. Since every object presupposes a sign, as Dealey was fond of saying, I think a few words about the structure of sign relations can help us to understand better the process surrounding interpretation, <coughs> or surrounding the interpretive act itself. So Peirce described semiosis, the action of using signs, as irreducibly involving three elements, an object, a sign vehicle, and an interpretant. Together, these give rise to a relation which is the sign, properly speaking. Namely, the relation whereby the interpretant is, from the specification the sign vehicle renders, oriented back towards the object. <clears throat> now, to add more nuance to this triadic model, Peirce, in later years, differentiated first between an immediate object and what he called the dynamic object, mm -hmm. and between three modes of interpretant, the immediate, dynamic, and final interpretants. And the diagram on the back of the handout speaks to this. Um, to, to some extent, I'm not going to go into all the details that are, are there, but. It's all right. So the dynamic object is the whole reality, which cannot be represented by any individual sign vehicle, but only indicated, and which must therefore be discovered, per says, by collateral experience. While the immediate object is that partial reality that can be represented by an individual sign vehicle. Now, I'm going to talk a lot more, obviously, today about interpretants. Peirce coined the term interpretant, it's not a typo, he meant to write it that way, in an attempt to show that there are things which do not themselves actually interpret, but that nevertheless have some interpretation-like capacity and can be involved in the overall process where interpretation, properly speaking, occurs. In other, in other words, so long as one thing takes or receives another as something, so long as the other is taken as, to use language similar to that of Heidegger, a process of interpretive elaboration is opened, a process of trying to work out the meaning of something. Therefore, interpretants are not interpreters as such, but occasions of interpretation, or ways in which an interpretation can develop according to the various powers or properties that the recipient of a sign relation possesses. To describe the three interpretants as simply as possible, immediate interpretants are the as of receptivity. That is, since the received is in the receiver in the mode of the receiver, every reception is a kind of taking as. An immediate interpretant is not thus any one specific power, 
but the occasion for reception made possible by every part of the organism involved in some reception. In other words, it's not intellect alone, nor the exterior senses, nor the cogitative power, nor the sensus communis, but any or even all of them, as well as any other part of the person that plays an immediate role in one's capacity for cognitive reception. Dynamic interpretants are the as of a sign's effect, or the reaction thereby evoked, the agitation of the faculties determined in some way by the actual presence of a sign relation. That is, after something has been received by an immediate interpretant, a result follows, such that someone is sympathetic, shocked, nonplussed, angered, and so on. Thus, we not only received an object as colored or human or intelligent, but react to it as repulsive or irritating or admirable. Following the mode of receptivity and dependent upon it is this mode of reactivity. Final interpretants are the as of inference, namely the inference of what some relation is, either between the sign vehicle and the self or between the sign vehicle and the object, which in turn leads to the pursuit of some purpose, either to modify one's consideration of the object or behavior towards it, or else to reinforce the current patterns of interpretation. Thus we see the truth between some statement and what it represents, or the goodness of some directive, or the nature, even, of some being. <clears throat> Paraphrased, Peirce gives as an example of this structure the scenario of his wife asking him what the weather is like. Uh, in response, he says that it is a stormy day. She's disappointed by this news and learns from it that she shouldn't get her hopes up for picnic weather in April, although today would be a lovely day for going out for a picnic, I suppose. <laughs> I was anticipating it to be raining when I showed up here, so... Um, in this scenario, the sign vehicle is the statement, it is a stormy day. The immediate object is the common notion of the present weather, which we signify in such a statement by the term it. It is a stormy day. Um, the dynamic object is the real meteorological condition. The immediate interpretant is the conceptual schema, which I would say is both the intelligible meaning and phantasmal representations, which allows for reception of the meaning conveyed by the sign vehicle, that statement that it is a stormy day. The dynamic interpretant is the reaction evoked by receiving this, the meaning, um, that is, whatever emotions or thoughts she might reactively experience, such as her disappointment. And the final interpretant is the inferential, inferential lesson she learns about not getting her hopes up for picnics during the cruelest of months. Now, the relations between the three interpretants are mutual, but asymmetrical. In each case, the prior interpretant determines the posterior in the manner of a sign, while the posterior, in consequence, affects the prior by habituation, an internal formal causality as the completing of a power in actuality. The consequence of the immediate is a sign to the dynamic, the consequence of which is then assigned to the final. And the consequences of the final, in turn, condition the immediate proximately and the dynamic indirectly. For instance, someone might have an understanding of the word Catholic or Thomist uh, in an immediate interpretant, which evokes a negative dynamic interpretant upon being heard, but which might be changed through new and better informed final interpretants which thereby improve the immediate interpretant and thus condition the dynamic. Now, obviously, there's a really great problem here, right? Namely, that the lessons and habituation attained through final interpretants are quite often in error. Uh, 
As a consequence, our emotional reactions and receptive cognitive capacities may be diminished or diverted from their proper ends. If we believe certain false compositions or divisions and take for granted that they are true, never questioning whether the unity or disunity they signify resolves coherently into an intelligible whole, we will come to believe further false compositions and divisions, often to the reinforcement of disordered emotions or passions, such that a small error of resolution becomes a great irresoluble mess. For instance, someone can assent with no bad faith today to the statement, homosexual intercourse is natural, as though a statement which accords with truth, for they have already imbibed the belief that there are no natures, except perhaps as some vague amorphous term about inevitable or unconscious behaviors, but that there is only nature, which signifies to them only that which happens independent of human interference. Consequently, the notion of homosexual intercourse can be resolved with this deficient concept of nature, encountering no internal inconsistency when enunciatively composed, and therefore the, deviant, the individual will be deviant in ordination to further perceptions or cognitions, and perhaps offended when someone says that homosexual desire is disordered. Now, to revive the earlier question, of how interpretation arrives at a unity of meaning. We can now say that the unity to which a proposition resolves is the unity of a sign. A sign has its own unity by the object it signifies. A proposition signifies a complex object. That is an object carrying at least two different conceptual notes separable by at least a distinctio rationis. So long as the composition of these conceptual notes does not result in an incompatibility evident to it, the mind entertaining the proposition is determined by that object. Thus, assent can readily be made to propositions which are false, and assent to a proposition turns a thought, and increasingly the more one assents to a proposition, turns a thought into a belief, and therefore a habitual pattern of interpreting. The results of final interpretants reshape our possibilities for immediate interpretants, in other words, the compositions and divisions intellectually rendered upon objects previously apprehended partially determine the possibilities and probabilities for our consequent apprehensions. This determination, however, is not absolute. For the concept as a sign, whether of an object simple or complex, can be further determined either by the application to some object more particular or by some new sign and object which further illumines the object of the first sign. The first of these possibilities is an indeterminacy by generality, Peirce says, and the latter an indeterminacy by vagueness. And as Peirce states, a triangle in general is neither scalene nor isosceles nor equilateral, while the vague sense of animal is neither truly nor falsely male nor truly nor falsely female. So one may know the possible variants of a triangle and yet entertain the notion in general while someone may know animal without knowing the exhaustion of its potential genders, just as someone may know nature only in its characteristic of independence from the artifice of human beings. The universe of signs is not closed, but rather one which remains inherently open to the elaboration of meanings, and the universe constituted by the signs that are human concepts remains always open to further determination, for they are themselves grounded in the vaguest of all concepts in being. Unfortunately, it is all too easy for people to hold their vague concepts as sufficiently determined, or to mistake a concept which is vague for being general, 
and in either case reject further determinations resoluble into the concept itself. And I think this peculiar deficiency can be understood better with some insights drawn from Heidegger. One of the key distinctions and the most well-known that Heidegger makes in Being and Time is between the present at hand and the ready to hand. The former consists in a sight of the object abstracted from referentiality, which can be either meaningless, as when you just come across something and you have no idea what it is or what its purpose is, or it can be directed at the meaning of the thing in itself. Well, the ready to hand, however, exists instead within an already determined referential context of purpose and therefore of use. While this is primarily worked out by Heidegger in terms of perceptual objects, what Heidegger terms for lack of a better translation, equipment, I think the notion of the ready to hand works just as well to explain our intellectual positions. That is, we take concepts as ready to mind, ready to be deployed for attempting the understanding of new phenomena. Now, taking things as ready to hand is, in Heidegger's view, a kind of interpretation. As aforementioned, he views any taking as to be an interpretive act, such that we are, I think, truly, and not just in Heidegger's opinion, always already in the process of interpreting things around ourselves, at the very least in the process of seeing things in their readiness to hand and understanding ideas in their readiness to mind. Heidegger describes finite intuition, which I think we can understand perhaps is similar to an abstractio totalis or abstractio totius in the Thomistic tradition, as a hin niemen, which in the published English translation is rendered taking in stride, but more literally means accepting, submitting to, or swallowing. And I think that last, a, a more accurate or at least a more impressive image. For our early concepts are very seldom obvious to us. Rather, we absorb them by a social or cultural osmosis, so to speak, allowing our intellects to become those notions without any sort of critical evaluation of them. We do not challenge the meaning of such concepts, whether we're disposed by them to the understanding of the truth of the objects they signify, but take it for granted that their significations are true, just as we take for granted the functionality of the ready-to-hand hammer when we need to drive a nail. Now, some taking for granted of the truth of the signification of our concepts is unavoidable. No one's born a philosopher, and in our youth we seldom focus on genuinely questioning the meaning of much of anything. But the concepts we form in our early years do not occur in a schedule according to some predetermined genetic plan. That is, aside from the very vaguest, very earliest of concepts, such as being, non-being, unity, and multiplicity, the development of our concepts follows no necessary linear path. In consequence, the things that are truly better known to us can be missed altogether. And things untrue can be mistaken as though they were things better known to us. Or that the things which are better known to us can be falsely composed with other notions which distort the meaning of the truly better known. This results not only in conceptual lacunae, but an ill disposition to signs which would make known the truth. When these false concepts are correlated with emotional charge, the dynamic interpretant can play a greater and more disruptive role in reconciling the interpreter with the reality that contravenes the falsity. In consequence, a challenge issued to concepts taken for granted may not only not be understood, it may be interpreted as offensive or threatening. 
often leading to those challenges not only being deferred from intellectual reconciliation, but deemed irresoluble and unequivocally rejected from being considered. Heidegger named this phenomenon insistence, with a hyphen between the in and the sistence. That is, he thought we not only exist or through our concepts stand outside ourselves and in a meaning irreducible to ourselves, but we may also stand obstinately within the meaning revealed by those concepts. This obstinate insistence, the holding of a concept is sufficiently and truly determined, is seldom, I think, a decision made with full consciousness, but rather a complacency into which we easily slide. This complacency, the obstinate satisfaction with the meaning rendered present to us by some concept insistently held, not only holds false determinations as true, but also abandons true determinations to pernicious vagueness. That is, by failing to distinguish the proper integral parts, as well as the crucial relations to others which illumine a being's purpose, we leave the notion of that being open to false interpretations and deviant developments. I think we can see this very clearly in the faulty notions commonly held today concerning, for instance, nature or what's socially constructed, or in the notions of science, knowledge, justice, morality, Catholicism, or any number of concepts which are ill-defined as they are commonly appropriated in a pre-philosophical attitude, which consumes without question. In this pre-philosophical context of interpretation, meaning as referentiality readily comes to a position of dominance in our thinking. That is, meaning as referentiality dominates inasmuch as our thinking about objects consists not in attempting to understand them as they are in themselves, but rather as they are related to the self. This kind of thinking is not practical thinking as such, which practical thinking being properly human necessarily entails the extension of speculative understanding, either in oneself or in truths transmitted through tradition, but rather is practical as having usurped the primacy of the speculative and thereby lost the fullness of its own character. As a consequence, meaning as teleological comes under the auspices of this deficient praxis, the importance of things is judged by the referentiality to the self rather than by their own properties. I think that this is the true fear Heidegger expresses in his question concerning technology. That is, the fear not of technology as such, but how technology alters our thinking, diverting us from the speculative understanding of nature and ordering us rather towards its domination. Um, Heidegger considered understanding as the foundational moment of our thinking to be the opening of the self into possibilities for further intellectual realization, or as Gadamer put it within the expanded notion of interpretation, the working out of appropriate projects, anticipatory in nature, to be confirmed by the things themselves, is the constant task of understanding. With the prevailing of technologically influenced thinking, immediate interpretants, the grounds of our understanding, become receptive only to the possibilities for domination of what we encounter, and reject the possibilities of what those things are in themselves. Grounding this paradigm of thinking for the sake of domination or control is a background understanding of the universe. Dealey would often speak, and not always necessarily with the greatest clarity, of the background cosmological image of the Latin Aristotelian tradition the idea of the celestial spheres and the biological determinations that they rendered, with an eye to how that image influenced the thinking of the time. I think today we can identify a different background cosmological image, which has been widely appropriated, swallowed, and assimilated, 
which shapes not only the paradigms of technological domination, but much of the thinking of our culture as a whole, a background image which is ultimately nihilistic, for it is one in which the sensible corporeal universe is all that we can know, that the sensible corporeal universe is vast and in that vastness uncaring for humankind, that it produced us through an improbable and extensive series of evolutionary accidents, and that eventually it will rest in the unmeaning equilibrium of a heatless death. Presumably, to reclaim culture from this nihilistic worldview, philosophy is necessary. We cannot simply replace the nihilistic background image which has spread to every corner of the Western world by winning a culture war. It will be handed on, handed down, both explicitly and implicitly, for the foreseeable future. For philosophy to obviate this nihilism requires philosophy to be defined. For much of what today claims the name of philosophy is in fact sophistry, of such sophistication that the sophists themselves serve the belief that they are genuinely philosophers. <laughs> so what is it that turns thinking into philosophical thinking? What distinguishes the context of philosophical interpretation from that of an ordinary interpretation? Now, according to Aquinas, the answer is the use of logic, which concerns itself with second intentions. That is not just the ideas of genus and species and so on, which are distinguished within the doctrine of logic, but any reflective considerations which study the relation between a concept as a sign and the object made known by a concept, insofar as they may be made useful in demonstrating the truth about ens naturae. In other words, without reflection upon what we have swallowed, we cannot tell whether we have adequately grasped the truth about the object. We're very often mistaken when we need a reflective move to distinguish what merely appears from what is. I think this is, in a strong sense, what Peirce is getting at when he identifies semiotics as the normative science of truth, for it guides all of our scientific inquiries into meaning, or ought to. Now, the need for reflection is also well noted by Heidegger, who brings it to prominence in his phenomenological method. Where Husserl distinguished phenomenology in terms of various reductions, Heidegger approaches phenomenological inquiry not only through his own reduction, quite different from that of Husserl, but also what he calls construction and destruction. I kind of think he actually chose the names just because it made a nice trio of terms, um, rather than it actually suggested what he wanted it to. Um, <clears throat> but without belaboring all of the details of my interpretation of this, the phenomenological reduction leads an apprehended object back, sorry, um, back to the ground of intelligibility, to the ground of unconcealment, or what Heidegger calls Sein. The phenomenological, con phenomenological construction brings forward the precise means through which an apprehended object has been disclosed to us. That is, through and with what concepts we have apprehended the object, with an awareness of what meanings we have constituted in our specifically individual relations to that object in order to enable phenomenological reduction of that object. <clears throat> and phenomenological destruction is the, quote, critical process in which the traditional concepts, which at first must necessarily be employed, are dismantled down to the sources from which they were drawn so that we may in turn engage in construction and reduction in, quote, a genuine repetition of a traditional question. In other words, the phenomenological method proceeds in no small part by exposing our own background images, the notions we have appropriated, and perhaps not consciously. 
through both our personal experiences and our reception of traditions, no less of ideas attained within a philosophical context of interpretation than a non-philosophical context, and allowing us to genuinely re-ask the questions which produced those backgrounds in the first place. Okay, so to begin wrapping up, the obstinate insistence which Heidegger calls out is, I think, the common factor in the maintenance of bad interpretations, which insistence, put otherwise, is the belief that one or another concept is sufficient for understanding its object and all those things in which the object is found, when, in fact, the concept has been rendered into an incorrect determination, most often by some false composition or division, though at times simply by, I think, leaving it uninvestigated. The belief thus engendered affects not merely our intellectual dispositions, however, but the whole of our cognitive and even cathectic bearing, altering our dispositions for reception and reaction, and thereby leading into a downward spiral of interpretational deviance. Today we can see the supposed in-itself meaninglessness of the cosmos as an uncritically swallowed notion which initiates many a vicious interpretive spiral. Likewise, at the root of many common errors is an unconscious and implicit nominalism. I think we can identify these two, that is, cosmological nihilism and implicit nominalism, as the root causes, in some sense, of most of our culture's current malaise. Were we to dismantle, say, post-gender ideologies, socialist utopian fantasies, scientism, the decrease of faith, or advocation for polyamory, I believe we'd find at least one, if not both, nihilism and nominalism at the bottom. Probably not as consciously adopted, critically evaluated positions, but positions which have simply been taken in stride as unchallenged givens. Of the two, I believe nominalism is what more immediately distorts the interpretive capacity, for it distorts ens primum cognitum as the principle of intelligibility. That is, the ends signified by the copulative est never stands for the nominalist as indicating anything independent of the mind's activity, but solely something produced by its own constitution. The whether it is becomes turned inside out and thereby perverts the purpose of a resolutio secundum rationem, resolution to non-referentially circumscribed intelligible unities of meaning is not sought when it is believed they do not exist. One instead seeks resolution to the referential, experiential ground of meaning. In other words, resolution for the nominalist is never to what is this in truth, but to what is this for me. On the other hand, cosmological nihilism, guarded first of all by this implicit nominalism, rejects the other movement of resolution, the resolutio secundum rem, the metaphysical direction of resolution. Whenever the light of reality breaks through the veil of nominalism, the dark cloud of nihilism is there to obfuscate away the purpose of intelligibility of truth. That is, I think it's critical we not only understand, but make central to our philosophical evangelization, so to speak, the twofold movement of resolutio. While some notice has been given in recent years to this twofold movement, secundum rationum and secundum rem, most of the attention has been paid to this movement specifically as within the philosophical sciences, such that we have a resolutio secundum rationum to the common notion which unifies a particular scientific inquiry, and a resolutio secundum rem which resolves to the causes responsible for all things which fall within that common notion. 
In my dissertation, I argued for a general resolutio secundum rationum, that is, of uh, all our cognition as a whole to ends primum cognitum, and not just to the common notions grounding each of the particular sciences. I believe it's this resolution which Heidegger has in mind with his phenomenological method ordered towards a reduction in design. I think Peirce similarly has this in mind with his notion of the categories of experience, which I didn't discuss explicitly at all here today, but which are implicit actually in the three senses of meaning that I uh, laid out at the beginning. Um, <clears throat> um, and especially when we see his notion of firstness as applied to the human intellect. At any rate, what these three thinkers, Aquinas, Heidegger, and Peirce, and those who are close in association with those traditions, what they have in common is the notion of a foundation of intelligible meaning. This is ens primum cognitum, a notion which reduces neither to the subjective nor the objective, a notion which transcends all divisions because it underlies all divisions. And today this notion has been displaced. That is, while ens primum cognitum cannot be avoided in the order of intellectual realization, it is the first intelligible just as sound is the first audible. Its proper signification has been hijacked by the nominalists who reduce meaning to the sphere of referentiality. This nominalism has formed a symbiotic relationship with the unconscious and implicit background image of a cosmological nihilism. This combined disbelief not only distorts the content of thought, but also undermines the ability to think itself, such that, for instance, we cannot argue with an advocate for polyamory about the meaning of marriage, since marriage itself for the polyamorist has no meaning at all. <coughs> okay. Um, and just to conclude, um, after I submitted the, the title of my presentation, I considered whether I should have gone with another, whether I should have titled it Dialectic and Metaphysics, and subtitled it If Nominalism is True, Everything is Permitted. <laughs> that is, I think Peirce and Heidegger both possess great insight into the dialectical mistakes whereby we become obstinate in our false interpretations and thereby they can help us overcome the problematic immediate acceptance of what accords with our opinions as though it's fact. But Thomism, which I think can easily accept and incorporate the suggestions of semiotics and phenomenology, and Thomism alone, I think, offers the path of resolution which turns dialectical excellence, a way towards knowledge in its own right, into the legitimate attainment of metaphysical truth, or perhaps of a complete philosophy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Center for Thomistic Studies podcast. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leave a five-star review, which helps others discover the show. The Center for Thomistic Studies is based at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, and it is the only graduate philosophy program in the United States uniquely focused on the thought of St. Thomas. If you are interested in future talks and events at the Center, please like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Thomistic Studies to receive regular updates and news. For more information about the Center, please visit us online at stthom.edu slash cts. That's s-t-t-h-o-m dot e-d-u slash c-t-s. Thank you.